When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city to see a marching band. He said, son, when you grow up, would you be the savior of the broken, the beaten and the damned? He said, will you defeat them, your demons and all the non-believers, the plans that they have made? Because one day I'll leave you a phantom to lead you in the summer to join the Black Parade. Hello, and welcome to episode 137 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. On this special episode of TBR Podcast, I interviewed Dr. Shane A. Wood, Assistant Professor and Director of Writing at the University of Southern Mississippi and host of the podcast Pedagogue as a part of the TBR Podcast Keystone Perspectives series. Do what you're doing, but make it something else too so that there's really no questions in terms of its quote unquote research, quote unquote scholarship, quote unquote contributions to the field, right? And and to me, like, man, I'm just so thankful. Like I really am thankful because I didn't, that wasn't on my radar. You know, like that, that literally wasn't, I didn't even think about that. I was like, I'm just doing the podcast. I'm gonna keep doing that. It's like the same people, like mentors who say, hey, like what you're doing in the classroom as a teacher, do research on that, like interconnect that, that that's the intersection, right? Research what you're teaching and vice versa, like, like use teaching to research. The big rhetorical podcast, Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast, is an inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of distinguished scholars and professionals working in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. Scholars featured as a part of the Keystone Perspective series are people who enjoyed discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the field. You'll hear more from Shane in a bit. But first, I want to let everyone know about the fourth annual TBR Podcast Carnival that take pla- takes place August 28th through 31st, 2023. The theme of the 2023 TBR Podcast Carnival is Artificial Intelligence, Applications and Trajectories. The theme is intentionally broad so that podcasters who work in a variety of areas or topics may produce with the theme in mind in their own unique way, with their own voice, and for their own audience. Last year, for our third annual carnival, 13 podcasts joined the lineup, including Pedagogue, Chiroticast, and Writing Remix Podcast, which is hosted by the University of Southern California Writing Program. We hope to double podcast participants for our carnival this year and are well on our way to doing so. So here's how it works. Carnival episodes from four to five podcasts will be released daily from August 28th through 31st, 2023, culminating in a keynote podcast episode on the Big Rhetorical Podcast on August 31st. We are continuing the TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award for graduate students for the third year. The goal of this award is to highlight graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, writing studies, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. This award comes with a financial prize of $100. The 2023 TBR Podcast Carnival, Artificial Intelligence, Applications, and Trajectories, is slated to take place August 28th through 31st with final publications or productions due on August 28th. 
More communication concerning specific publication dates during that week, file sharing information, approaching the theme, and general logistical support will be provided to podcasters who accept our invitation to participate. If you are interested in taking part in the 2023 TBR Podcast Carnival, Artificial Intelligence, Applications, and Trajectories, please reach out to us via email with your contact information, including the name of your host, name of the podcast, website, email, and a short host bio and podcast description. I hope to hear from all of you soon. Dr. Shane A. Wood is an Assistant Professor of English and Director of Composition at the University of Southern Mississippi. He teaches first-year writing, digital literacies, technical writing, and a graduate practicum in composition theory. His research interests include writing assessment, teacher response, and multimodality. He hosts a podcast called Pedagogue. His book, Teachers Talking Writing, is a collection of conversations about teaching writing in the 21st century. It's open access on the WAC Clearinghouse. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Shane A. Wood. Who are you? What's your name and your title and your institution uh, and your role there? Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, my name is Shane Wen. And uh, first, Charles, I just want to say thank you so much for for having me on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Um, I'm really just a, a big fan of your work and, and this podcast and thankful for the opportunity to, to chat. And, and most importantly, just thankful for the space that you provide teachers and scholars and, and activists. Um, I really admire uh, just the work that you're doing through this podcast and yeah, I'm I'm glad it exists, and I I just want you to know I, I think it really contributes in, in meaningful ways to the field. Um, so I'm familiar with your podcast, and I feel like you always ask this question first, um, which is great. Uh, I am uh, Shane Wood. I'm from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, I grew up in the '90s. My Dad worked second and third shift in in factories in Scottsdale, Kentucky, which is a real small town, uh, for 25 years. And my mom did part-time work. Um, she didn't go to college. My dad went to college um, for a couple of years, and then he left when he was 20, and then went back part-time um, in his mid to late 20s for associate's degrees. And then he actually went back and graduated with his bachelor's when he was 60, which was really cool because he was at Western Kentucky University, which is where I graduated and my brother graduated. Um, and he graduated the same time I was finishing my PhD um, at the University of, of Kansas, which was really cool because I got to you know go to his graduation and, and celebrate him and all his hard work. Um, I, yeah, I, I just, I know it's not a big philosophical question of who are you, but I've been thinking about that question since, since you sent it. And it's like, I want to start more with like the, like the family, you know, and yeah. like, like who I am yeah. than just like my work, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah, I have, I have some just wonderful, like incredible parents, Charles, and wish I could see them more often. They live, you know, seven and a half hours away. Um, well, what so was tough. it like growing up in Bowling Green? Yeah, it was incredible. Um, I think, you know, whenever I, I think of growing up as a kid, I uh, just think of my older brother, right? Like he, he's my best friend still and such a role model. Uh, it's just me and him. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, it was really good, it, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a neat town, a, a real neat, neat community. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, I think of, yeah, Bowling Green to me is like family. It's home, you know, Kentucky's home and, and family in a lot of ways. And I think it's a, uh, I, I hope that, you know, w you know, me and Melody, my, my wife, that we're, we're establishing that sense of home and community with our girls. So um, I'm a husband and a dad uh, kind of following up that, who are you type question. Um, 
you know, we have three little girls, a five-year-old, a four-year-old and a two-month-old. Um, so yeah, Bowling Green was great. Um, in terms of like life and education and school, I, I think I, in, in Bowling Green, I think I just got a, you know, a picture of like hard work a lot, you know, like with my dad, my dad working in yeah. factories. Uh, and then my mom just being, being home. I mean, they're just incredible. They felt like they came to everything that we were a part of and just super, super active, uh, um, in all aspects of our life and, and still are. And, uh, they were down here this, this last week on spring break. Um, uh, my brother and his family were, and then my mom and dad came, came down not, not too long ago to meet Adeline. Cause, uh, yeah, we just had a baby. So congratulations. Good, good, yeah. Thanks. Good, good spending time with them. Um, but in terms of work, like what I do now, because that was a part of your question, which is more institutional facing, right? So I work, I teach at the University of Southern Mississippi and I'm the director of composition here. And we're about an hour and 15 minutes from the coast. Um, our first year writing program, it consists of English 100E and English 101 and English 102. So English 100E is our, our basic writing class. And we offer about 20 sections of, of that class each fall. Um, which is a lot, right? So English 101 is, is composition one, 102 is composition two. And, and really like, I, Charles, I just, I love teaching, right? Like I'm very enthusiastic, very passionate about teaching and, and I love teaching first year writing classes. Those are my favorite classes to teach. Um, you know, I'm passionate about curriculum development and assessment and just really listening to, to students. And I think as a, as a teacher and as an administrator, you know, what I feel like I do a lot is just collaborating and, and advocating. And we have some incredible students here at USM. And, you know, most of our students come from this southern region of Mississippi. A lot of first generation college students, a lot of students who are working or have other responsibilities kind of outside of outside of school. It's a pretty, I would say, uh, big kind of commuter population. Um, yeah, I just can't I can't really say enough about our students and uh, just how much I'm constantly learning and listening. It's just a, it's a joy and, and like privilege to, to teach um, and, and to teach here in the deep South. Mm. Mm. Well, you, you answered this beautiful answer to this keystone question, if you will, um, for the podcast. And now I don't even want to talk about the institutional stuff. I want to talk about growing up in the nineties. <laughs> yeah. I was born in 1989, you know? So like, um, you know, millennial, millennial, but also kind of, I think about this all the time. Like if you're born in that era, like it was a unique era, like it's a unique yeah. kind of generation because one, like we had landlines, <laughs> like telephones, like cell phones didn't really exist. Computers right. like didn't really exist. Right. Um, but you're like on the border of this emergence of technology and the internet and computers right yeah um it was just yeah it was such a it was such a unique because i think that we were able um, to kind of experience kind of both worlds like the world pre early 2000s right. and like technology computers phones and that type of accessibility and in social media right like it was all pre that but at the same time, we were kind of like the first to experience, you know, right. so, social media, like yeah. YouTube and, and MySpace, right? Or, yeah, I, I don't know, you know, back then I think of like Napster and LimeWire and stuff like that too, you know? That's, <laughs> yeah. like, that's like pre-Spotify. <laughs> yeah, sitting um, there in the guest room <laughs> on the computer waiting for things, songs to download. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I also <laughs> think of like, you know, like, you know, you're in, in our household, uh, you know, like a AOL instant messenger, like in your computer and like in, uh, the computer was like in a, in a back room, actually our parents' bedroom and like some family member would call and knock you off online. And you're just like, I was trying to, I was engaged in a good conversation, right? Like how? Yeah. And then you have that dial up tone and everything like that. Yeah. 
So it's really unique. I love it is unique. Nice. and music wise, because I'm a I'm a huge fan of music. Like, oh, yeah. Huge. Who are we listening to in the, from the 90s or even in the 90s? Well, I'll tell you, I'm I'm teaching like a, a, a digital storytelling class right now. And and yesterday's playlist in our class, it was like a workshop day. Yesterday's playlist was literally all early 2000s, like angsty kind of grind. Yes. Um music that was like yeah and and then we had like this discussion of another like what you'd think of a paradox right like you have these boy bands like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys but then you have like the the playlist yesterday was like good Charlotte <laughs> like Blake Blake 182 um like all these you know uh is throw some Avril Lavigne in there like it, it was just uh so c- contrasting right and yeah, yeah i don't know it was a beautiful time for yeah. for music i feel like too uh maybe blink 182 needs to be inserted into the boy band conversation more often right i mean they are a boy band right yeah and i think i think that's a, i think that's the funny thing right like you have all these early 2000s bands that are kind of more like that punk angst right and yeah, I think of like My Chemical Romance. Like I played that. I played yeah. um, like Fallout Boy. Right? You know what I mean? It was like it, there's similarities, but there's like really big differences, right? <laughs> right? Of like music style, tonality, kind of attitude of the genre itself. Um, the All American Rejects, like that type of stuff. You know what I mean? It's just like what a what a time, what a time there in the early early two thousands. Last comment here. We can move on to what yeah, you're really, yeah. really here to talk about <laughs> is the thing I think about growing because I grew up in the '90s too, right? I was born in 1987. Uh, is we're like that last generation before like the ubiquitous of digital technology, right? So it's not just that we got to watch it develop; it's that we can be reflective now, right, about that time before technology was everywhere and on both of our hands and a microphone in front of us, you know, in front of a video camera. I think that's an important part of the conversation. Yeah, totally. Totally. So you're at university of Southern Miss Mississippi uh, uh, in Hattiesburg, uh, where you serve as the director of writing. You mentioned this earlier, you mentioned, and here's a quote listeners quote, I love teaching, end quote, uh, Shane Wood, an important. <laughs> that's, <laughs> an, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's great. But I know you a bit and <laughs> listeners of the podcast aren't surprised by that. And I know that that is true. That is a true statement. Knowing you, you do love teaching. You are passionate about being in the classroom. And uh, I think that that's important uh, when we, uh, not only for the people that I talk to like on the podcast to talk about their teaching, but to amplify some of the unique things they're doing in the classroom. You mentioned the playlist, right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this digital writing course. So I wonder if uh, a little bit as we ease into talking about your new book, if you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things you're doing in the classroom this semester. Yeah. And, and maybe before that, like I'm, I really care about like just being honest and transparent, you know what I mean? And and being yeah. vulnerable. And I think, you know, conversation like this type of stuff allows us to do that, even though yeah. I know that this is going to be a little more public <laughs> facing because it's a <laughs> podcast. But like for me, the I love teaching quote, I mean, Charles, like if it's not for teaching, like I'm not doing this stuff, yeah. you know what I mean? Like if it's not for, <clears throat> if it's not for, for students, like I, I don't, I don't seem I don't see a space for me in academia, right? Like if, right. It, if, it, if it's really not like listening and learning and, and with with students in the classroom, um, I can find a different job. Like, and I don't, yeah, I don't know if that's said enough, like in academia, right? Like um, the other aspects of academia, I think I have more questions uh, about like, inequitable systems and structures and like more questions of like, what, what are we doing and, and why are we doing this stuff? And, and that's why I said, I think a lot of my job is just collaborating and advocating for students and, and people teaching first year writing and in the classroom. Um, because I find that space like extremely 
extremely valuable and extremely important. And uh, I was having a conversation just yesterday with a friend about, um, I guess, the institutional hierarchies of the work that we do in, in academia, right? And I think some of the words that, that we hear are often like research, teaching, service, right? And oftentimes it can be presented in that way. And I'm like, that's so backwards, man. You know what I mean? I'm just like, that's, I don't, I don't see that as like my priorities or emphasis, like in that order, right? Like mm. to me, I think we really need higher education. Like, I don't, I personally, I guess, want to elevate and emphasize teaching and service as mm. the most important contributions, like where we're interacting in the lives of other people um, way more than research. And I know like that's kind of weird because we're about to talk about this book on that I, you know, that I had the fortune of of like listening and collaborating with people and and writing, but like really it, it's all about teaching and the book's all about teaching, right? Like the book is all about teaching right. um, and, and, and getting to hear from, from teachers in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, I, I think I just wanted to like to share that, right. It's like one, um, like my identity, it's also the, who are you question? Like my identity is not defined by academia right? It's not. And then two, where I see myself in academia is as a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And then as someone, and and, and I, yeah, I just, I think sometimes things can be very vertical, right? In, in academia and wish things were more like horizontal, right? Mm-hmm. Like less hierarchical, less um, driven by maybe power uh, and, and more driven by um relationships i really love that answer shane and when you think about elevating service and elevating teaching as a part of you know your job um over research i think that's kind of what's so great about your podcast is that it's doing that work that it is elevating uh, teachers, right, voices, uh, but it's also a tool for the classroom uh, that you are performing researching, performing research through podcasting, but also serving the field by creating space for these voices to talk. And so I think that that's just really, I don't actually have a question. I just think that that's awesome. <laughs> well, I I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm humbled and very appreciative and thankful again for um the, the work that you're doing i th- i think charles like you know we we've had these conversations like in chicago and then you know off off recordings as well of like this works hard you know like it, so it's hard. hard in the sense of where it fits institutionally where it fits programmatically departmentally like where is this valued in things and I think like you go back and forth a lot as a, as a podcaster, as someone who is doing this work, because um, it, it is often, and I know uh, self and others write about that. It, this, this, this type of work is often not positioned or seen in that or rewarded in that hierarchical structure that institutions like define as research, for example, right? Um, so then I think it's difficult, not in the sense of, um, I I think it's difficult in the sense of, and maybe if you're like me and, you know, and and maybe, maybe to a fault, like I think of like perception a, a lot and maybe what's hard is like that, like, is, is this worth it? You know, not in the sense of is this good? Because it is good. I love, you know, talking with teachers and I love 
amplifying voices in different institutional settings and, and amplifying different positionalities of teachers in, in classrooms. And that that work is good and worth it. It's, again, maybe my critique is, is always just like the inequitable system and structure. The, the hierarchy is the power involved in in academia and in higher education, right? Like, I, I think that is what makes it difficult. I mean, and I think that's it. <coughs> Sorry, I think I think the same thing is true. Like, whenever we're talking about even teaching in service within the institution of, say, someone teaching a four four or five five load, right? Like, where is the advocacy? for that labor and time and effort mm. and how is that being rewarded? And then also how are we changing systems where people aren't burnt out and tired and exhausted? You know what I mean? So I think you can look at it in a different, different levels. Right. And, and I think this is one thing of, that I try to consider too, just as a writing program administrator is like, looking through all these positionalities of like graduate students and, and non-tenure track faculty or full-time non-tenure track faculty versus like lecturers versus um, people that have tenure, right? Like really thinking like, how are we creating better systems and structures where work and labor are valued, where maybe hopefully we can work towards equity, work towards like this horizontal, again, this maybe horizontal ecology and not this vertical, hierarchical, power-driven, self-centered, right. self-focused um, ecology. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know how we get there. I just know that we have to do the work in a coalitional way to get there. <laughs> um and I'm 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 happy that you're doing that work, both in your teaching and in your research. Your your new book is called Teachers Talking Writing: Perspectives on Places, Pedagogies, and Programs, and it was published by the Series in Writing and Rhetoric, and made available open access to the WAC Clearinghouse. Listeners might need you to explicate on how that works, Shane. But Teachers Talking Writing is a collection of conversations about the theory and teaching of writing in post-secondary contexts. Um, according to the promotional materials for the book, it might also be considered a composition anthology focused on practices and pedagogies in the 21st century. Um, interconnected with Pedagogue, which we haven't mentioned the name of your podcast yet, but Pedagogue Podcast about teaching writing, the book offers 52 perspectives on composition and rhetoric across institutions and positions. Um, I know that the book has been well-received. I feel like the book has been well-received in the field, things I see on social media, uh, things uh, and stuff like that. But let's go back to the beginning before we get to the present. You might answer this question with pedagogue in mind, or maybe not, but how did this book, Teachers Talking Writing, how did it come to be? What is its genesis and what exigencies are driving this work? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on like uh, of where it starts. Like I, I can't say the, the book starts by itself. Like it starts with pedagogue, right? Like I think you were pretty pr pretty spot on with with it starts with pedagogue. The, the book look, the book doesn't exist without without pedagogue and the conversations that I had with with teachers in our field and, and them sharing their, their stories and, and then sharing their pedagogy and practices. So, yeah, I, I kind of look at the book, like you, you mentioned um, some of this, but the, the book includes 52 perspectives on, on teaching, writing, right. Um, in post-secondary context in the 21st century. Um, and it includes 14 chapters and that it's grouped into three sections, right? So, as the title kind of notes, um, the first section is places and the second section is pedagogies and the third, the third section is programs. Um, so each chapter then includes uh, at least four perspectives um, kind of centered around a, a, a topic or, or theme. And 
I would, I feel like I can't talk about the book without just saying how thankful I am and how much gratitude I have for the 52 contributors. Right. And, um, I, you know, I, I really, this book only exists because of their, their willingness to share. And, um, I think the book for me, kind of the exigence as well is like, I want to kind of create the, I want to create work that reflects also like my pedagogical values. Right. And and like what I care about. Mm -hmm. Um, so I care a lot about multimodality, right? I care a lot about equity and, and open access. I care a lot about collaboration. And then, um, I think one thing that this book is doing is that polyvocality, like the, the multiple of voices, um, together, as opposed to having like a singular voice, say something about some, something or some topic or idea, like having multiple voices, right? Like we, as teachers might draw on the same pedagogical frameworks, but it might look different in the classroom, right? So like having different representations of what that looks like in the classroom. So origins is the book's multimodal in nature, right? It's connected to pedagogue. Pedagogue, as you mentioned, it, it's a podcast that that I host and created back in 2019. Um, and each episode is a conversation with a teacher about their teaching and research. Uh, so with that in mind, I think, um, you know, I, the book starts taking shape through pedagogue, right? And through this accumulation of conversations and through these shared stories and through these uh, these relationships. I, I guess I can't emphasize enough relationships. Like that's, that, and I think maybe that's why I'm drawn to just teaching, right? Like just the relational nature of this work that that you're doing and that I'm trying to do. So the origins of this book, I think, starts with pedagogue, the accumulation of these episodes, of these conversations, of these relationships with people in our field. And then I think there was a turn within that um, where my attention was brought to what would this look like as a book, right? Like that's the big difference is like, right. I had only thought of pedagogue. That was the only thing like I was doing. I had no other like orientation to this being something else, right? So I think it had to be brought to my attention and, and the, the people that brought it to my attention were John Duffy, uh, Paula Matthew, and and Steve Parks, right? They were the ones that really brought to my attention, hey, what would it look like to use kind of the digital tools and technologies of the 21st century to create a book, a composition anthology that's interconnected to a podcast, right? To disseminate information and knowledge. Uh, so I think that they helped me really see that a book could exist from this work. And so I like just want to attribute that to them, right? Like they helped me see, hey, what if you reimagined the traditional composition anthology? And we're familiar with that, like in our grad classes mm -hmm. and our practicums, right? So what would it look like connected through a podcast driven by open access, um, kind of at the core centered on multimodality, um, thinking through like aspects of like engagement and accessibility just in a new way, right? Then the traditional comp composition anthology did. So I think that was a big part of it. And I think the motivation too was the support from other people. So I mentioned John Duffy and Paula Matthew and Steve Parks, but then I think there's like this whole community of people that were encouraging me with the podcast, which I think is really important too, because I don't, I think without that encouragement, I would have not taken up the book project. You know what I mean? So I think there's a book project that I was being encouraged by, but then other people like Sharon Mitchell and Jessica Nastel and Melvin Beavers and, and Stacey Perryman Clark and Christina Cedillo and Asaunaway, um, all of these other voices were also encouraging, right? So I think there was like, there had to be some motivation beyond just like, this could be a, a book project. I think there had to be that like momentum that the field was taking heart to like pedagogue and helping me see like it can be reimagined as something else too. Does that make sense? 
It does. Um, it does for me because I'm a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about uh, the different you know directions and trajectories of the podcast. And I appreciate all the things that you're saying as someone who maybe wants to do some similar work or work like that in the future, but also as someone who is, and I think that this is important, not contentious, doing other things too, right? Like we need this book. We need teachers talking, writing. It's essential. Uh, But we also need um, students working on the podcast, right? We need stuff like that. Like we need... We need someone to come into rhetoric and composition and not do an interview-based podcast, right? You know, we need all these different things if we're going to see the full potential of this genre in the field. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I, I think um, the more more people that we have um, doing this work and advocating for its contributions to the field... And I know the big rhetorical podcast has certainly received its recognition and and awards as well, which is incredible and, and super deserving. And um, but but those things matter. Like those things matter. I think the thing for me that John Duffy and Paula Matthew and Steve Parks did was they kind of made. And I'm not I'm not really familiar with like academic systems and structures. Like I told y'all, I told you a little bit about like my background, right? My family background. So I think they made visible because they have been within institutional systems where the podcast would sit in uh, some programs and departments, right? Like in terms of where does this go in like tenure and promotion, right? Like that type of stuff. And they right, were adv- right. they they were advocating and and like I said th- this isn't new right it's just stuff that I didn't know like this was stuff you know Cynthia Self was talking about that, like this with with uh, uh, multimodality and, and digital projects in the you know two thousands and two thousand tens right but they made me see that from like an institutional level and said they were kind of advocating on my behalf from afar and saying. Do what you're doing, but make it something else too, so that there's really no questions in terms of its quote unquote research, quote unquote scholarship, quote unquote contributions to the field, right? And and to me, like, man, I'm just so thankful. Like, I really am thankful because I didn't, that wasn't on my radar. You know, like that, that literally wasn't. I didn't even think about that. I was like, I'm just doing the podcast. I'm going to keep doing that. Um, It's like the same people, like mentors who say, hey, like what you're doing in the classroom as a teacher, do research on that. Like, like interconnect that, that that's the intersection, right? Research what you're teaching and vice versa. Like, like use teaching to research. Um, And then like they, I guess, saw the podcast, they saw Pedagogue. It was like, do that, like, right, you know, like, okay, take that same model or that same kind of perspective and turn it into something else. And again, I think, you know, they were seeing, they had been in a system, they had seen the system longer than I have. And I'm just really thankful for for that advice and mentorship. I love that. Resonates with some good advice a mentor gave me. He said, write about the digital projects you create. Uh, and the person who said that to me is going to hear this podcast <laughs> uh, and wonder why I still haven't uh, done it. But I have been doing that. I worked with you, right, last year. Uh, yeah, and you want to plug you, yeah. you want to plug, plug that, that I, and Composition I, review real quick? <laughs> I will. As a transition, listeners, go and seek out Computers and Composition, search Woods and Wood, and check out the first podcast review manuscript uh, for podcasts and rhetoric and composition. You yeah, mentioned, I, I, hey, I'm I'm very thankful for that collaboration, <laughs> and and also just want to say like, you also brought that to 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 my attention, and like, I'm just thankful that you came to me and you you thought about that, and um, what what a cool like project too, like that, yeah. that collaborative writing process was really awesome, and then also, I think, I would encourage people not because like we wrote it, I would encourage people to read that to see okay, 
how are we seeing podcast as scholarship? How are right. we seeing it as research? How are we then potentially creating even more equitable um, systems and structures within our own academic context to see this as worthwhile, to see it as valuable, to see this as contributing to, to teaching and, and students and life outside of academia, right? Like I think, yes. um, I think that is, uh, that's the stuff that I know like you and I care about quite a bit, you know? Yes. Okay. Let's keep going on here. We moved to podcasting. Uh, so are you a podcaster who also listens to podcasts or are you like a podcaster who this is, this is what I do. And I don't listen to <laughs> listen to podcasts because I think I'll go large swaths of time of like actually not listening to a lot of podcasts. How are you in this area? Yeah, shoot. What a question. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so I, I mentioned, yeah, I, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned that we have three kids, a five-year-old, yeah. a four-year-old and a two-month-old. Oh my so like we, I, I think for me, it's I'll I'll listen to podcasts like the podcasts that I'll assign. Like in my digital yeah. storytelling class, we've listened to Lore, we've listened to Serial, we've listened to This American Life, which was really influential in in my own journey to, mm. to pedagogue mm. and teachers talking writing. Like This American Life was pretty influential in that. Yeah. Um, so we we listen to these podcasts like in my class. Um, let's see, uh, was um. There's an episode on Reply All is another one um, that that I find find great and and engaging. So I'll listen to it kind of in the construction of my curriculum and my class. I will say outside of that, it's very hard for me to find time yeah. to listen to podcasts other than you know the big rhetorical podcasts. Um, just given the uh, the amount of um, maybe uh, commitment it takes, like to yeah. do, like sit down. And I know you don't have to sit down. Like you can walk around and listen to podcasts. I and I don't, I don't know if this is. I feel like as a podcaster, I if I'm walking around or if I'm riding my bike to school, like I'm listening to music and not podcast. Yeah. But if I'm taking long road trips. I have that time to like listen to longer podcasts that like like episodes with longer links or maybe with like a narrative that I, right. know, like I can follow almost um like binge watching Netflix or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But like I would say in my day-to-day -day life I don't listen to as many podcasts. I listen to a lot of music. <laughs> yeah. Um but then also again curriculum wise I'm listening to different episodes and podcasts with students and we're talking about um, the constructions of the podcast, uh, like its production, its distribution, its its audience, its purposes and whatnot. Oh, without the three little ones, uh, I would say I'm in the, kind of a similar boat. You know, I listen to what I'm teaching and I'm always teaching podcasts. Uh, I love this idea of like the podcast being developed, bingeable podcasting, right? I think that's something we should probably examine further i think one of one of, one of so one of the uh one of my interests in podcasting like and i'll talk with students about this a lot is like serial really changed a lot of like popularity yeah and recognition of podcasting that's a that's a podcast that that carried a lot of i guess cultural value and then like like yeah. um emphasis right like we were captivated by that and i often like connect serial to like a like a emergence of a lot of other mystery kind of murder yeah. true crime type yeah podcasts. the birth that, of it right yeah that really emerged from that um but that that is like a fantastic podcast where it like is if you have time like you can easily go from episode to episode to episode to episode like i did on a long road trip to texas right um i think that's like the that's the it's just, it's so, it captivates that storytelling. It captivates that narrative where it's so easy and accessible to just keep listening. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was giving a talk, um, I guess, I guess two weeks ago today, actually, or a week ago today um, at another institution on podcasting. And uh, I, I noted serial, like this is a, this is a watershed moment for this, you know, genre, for this medium. Totally. Um, 
but it's actually less cereal and more for me, which is a cereal production, but S town is like, yeah. And that came after, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. Enough of our indulgences here. Let's talk, (laughs) let's talk more about the book. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, we follow each other on social media and I'd seen so many, uh, scholars in our field, but scholars that I respect too, right? And that's an important thing, um, sharing information about your book, things that they had read, parts that had moved them or that they had collaborated on through being on Pedagogue. So two questions, I think. Folks in the field, right? What do you hope they take away from teachers talking, writing? And then Folks who come to the book from other disciplines, or maybe they're not in higher education at all, they're just really interested in podcasting. What do you hope they take away from teachers talking writing? Yeah, and those are those are great, great questions. Um, I mean, I, I think but both audiences, I hope it illuminates and, and highlights the uh the different ways teaching happens uh in post-secondary context in the 21st century, right? So I think hopefully it makes accessible and available um, knowledge on a more public level about higher education and what happens in writing classes. Another thing that I think it really contributes and and something that I feel like uh, is a bit different than other traditional composition anthologies is a attention to where the teaching of writing happens. So the first third of this book is where the teaching right. of writing happens. Places, right? right? So yeah, places. So um, so it emphasizes two-year colleges, right? There's a chapter on two-year colleges. There's a chapter on historically Black colleges and universities. There's a chapter on Hispanic-serving institutions. And again, each chapter has multiple voices, right? Four, four to five different perspectives talking about where the teaching of writing happens. I would say a lot of kind of traditional composition anthologies don't necessarily illuminate the where teaching is happening happening right or if so it's like dependent upon one ver- one person writing about that institutional context right so i think one of the things that i think hopefully that teacher talking writing does is it kind of illuminates the where and then brings in multiple perspectives um like I was, I was talking about this just 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 the other day, right? I, I think there's large gaps in the field of visibility of two-year colleges. Like even now, even like with the with the emergence of Taika as a national conference, right? And like that type of visible institutional professional space. But in the composition anthologies that I remember reading, there wasn't that visibility, right? Um, the same thing like with HBCUs, for example, and, and this has been a critique for a while is like often it's um in special issues like journal special issues in the field right but it's not necessarily centered or central to the ways that we talk about higher education and, and composition classes right so i think a big motivation again maybe is that that first third of the book communicates the where it happens like it doesn't just happen at our once you know what i mean like right. it doesn't just happen by tenured faculty, if anything, it's probably not by tenured faculty. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so, I do. Like that, I think is so important to communicate, not just to our field, but to other audiences yeah. as well. Right. I had a, you know, it, this also makes me think of my first conversation for pedagogue was with Mike Rose and just so thankful for him. Um, Listeners, so, don't start with the most recent episode of Pedagogue. If you listen to, if you haven't listened to Pedagogue before, go back and listen to the Mike Rose interview. It is an incredible uh, start to this venture. I'm sorry to cut you off, Shane. Yeah, no, but I, I, mean, I want listeners to know how important that was. He's just so he's so compassionate and caring and vulnerable and very student centered and very aware of even where conversations about writing are happening. And, and I think, um, you know, in one of those conversations, like he reached out to me and I, I read about this a little bit in a, like a, a small WPA piece and a, a kind of honoring Mike Rose, but um, 
you know, we talked and he was like, Hey, I want to, I want to talk about what I see as a problem, which is the people who are talking about teaching writing don't even teach writing, right? Like they're, they're policymakers, they're, they're lawmakers, they're disconnected mm-hmm. from the field. Yeah. Yet they're the ones writing op-ed pieces in the New York times. They're the, they're the ones creating laws and policies about our classes. Right. And I think one thing that, that really stood out to me is I think podcasts like pedagogy and like the big rhetorical podcast can actually represent voices in our classes, in our field. And this information and knowledge can circulate to much wider audiences where now we have a robust kind of archive of what teaching writing really is and where it happens and what it does, right? Um, So as opposed to like, I, you know, I would still encourage people to like write op-ed pieces in, in your articles about the teaching of writing, right? Like contact your policymakers and your your lawmakers uh, and your politicians about uh, educational policies and bills, right? One way that I have seen though, the, the I guess the good fortune of podcasting is it does allow, to, allow us to do this work on a much larger level that can reach a lot of different audiences, right? And I don't necessarily know how many people are listening to say Pedagog or the big rhetorical podcast, not in our niche. Podcasts are very niche anyways, right? Right. Um, but it's available. It's open access. Like it's free. You know, I think there there's something something to be said about that and that that work, right? That kind of moving beyond even our own institutional spaces and and creating um larger conversations uh, about teaching writing. So you've got teachers talking writing. Um, it's out now. Well, what's next? That ac- uh, that classic academic question. What's next for you, Shane? Uh, this could be where you talk a little bit about your teaching or your research plans. Uh, what's coming up in the future? That's a great question. Um, so currently, I'm I'm actually working on on this project. Uh, I was uh, awarded a, a, an emergent uh, researcher grant by Forces, and congratulations on on you as well. Um, Thanks, Shane. And yeah, I'm working on this project called uh, Retcomp Audio. And what Retcomp Audio is doing, or is hoping to do, uh, is to again kind of make our information. Um, less paywalled and more open access and more public facing, right? So I have contacted a lot of our major journals in our field of rhetoric and composition and reached out to them and have been so thankful by their generosity, basically with my request, which is my vision for Red Comp Audio is to have this this repository or this archive to use RSS feeds through podcasting where our articles are read by authors or, you know, book chapters are read by authors, making this knowledge more public, right? And and more engaging in the sense of potentially personal, like relationally. I think another thing about conversation, for example, it, there's ebb and flow. You hear tonality, you hear accents and and dialects, uh, linguistic diversity, right? Um, there's a little bit more character through this conversation. Partly, I can't necessarily get that in in text, right? As I'm reading a book, for example, but I can in like listening to Charles talk about um, teaching writing, right? So I am like at the beginning to middle stages of um, about to send out a call to our listservs and our fields for participation in this. I've gotten the okay had to read a lot of like kind of copyright and creative common licenses and whatnot, but I've contacted a lot of journals in our field and I've gotten the okay, again, the generosity of the the editors to do this work, right? Which I think is like incredible. Um, So kind of think audio books, but maybe article, article uh, books (laughs) or or articles streamed um, where people can read their work. uh, And it, yeah, and it just be a different way to engage in our field. Um, yeah, that's that's the current project. 
Where can people find information about Teachers Talking Writing online? Or maybe if they want to reach out to you, how can they do that online? Yeah, so you can um, find it at the WAC Clearinghouse. That's the open access version, uh, Teachers Talking Writing. You can probably just look and search in the WAC Clearinghouse to, to find that or, or, or Google that, and you can find the open access version of Teachers Talking Writing. You can also find it at the NCT uh, SWR store online. Um, if you want the, the kind of print text copy of Teachers Talking Writing, you can you can purchase that online there as well. Thanks for talking to me, Shane, about your book, Teachers Talking Writing, Perspectives on Places, Pedagogies, and Programs. Perfect. Thank you so much, Charles. I, I really appreciate you uh, and thank you for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Shane A. Wood. His work is obviously influential to me and my podcasting pursuits. I am also proud to call him a collaborator. But beyond the work, Shane is a friend. He is a friend and he has pushed our field, the study, the teaching, the practice of writing to new innovative places. I'm just excited to be here at the same time watching him work. It's been a long first year on the tenure track for me, moving to Texas, teaching five classes, teaching graduate classes for the first time. It's been a busy year. The awards, grants, publications, they've all been exciting. Exciting validations of my dedication to this work. I gotta say though, perhaps my favorite thing from this past year, or one of them, has been expanding the podcast to work with undergraduates. On top of all of this, my wife is pregnant. And our daughter, who we have named Georgia Kate Woods, is due in August. That means that the next time you hear from me, I will have become a dad. Now, I kind of feel like one already. Sure, I'm still sporting chucks instead of white New Balances. And while my jokes have always been lame, no, I haven't changed a dirty diaper yet. But my motivations are changing. My values are realigning. My goals are evolving. The way I think about things is different now. Every thought is about her, about my family. Everything I do is for her and for my wife. Until next season, listeners, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media not-for-profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapu, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by My Chemical Romance, Ben Sound, and Gladys Knight and the Pips. Then live without him.